do it with them, or vice versa. They do something with you that you really love, but maybe it's not their favorite thing, but that's what friends do. And they spend time together, and they invest with one another, and relationship and stuff like that is just lots of fun. But then that day comes where your good friend wants you to do something that you know is wrong. It goes against your core belief and your core principles. And you're faced with this question. My principles or my friends? Or you're at work and you're really liking your job right now because your direct supervisor, he or she is just, just a good person, good person to work for generally and the last couple of supervisors haven't been so good and, and you're excited about the future where you work because um, it, it, there's some positions opening up where you can advance in the company and you're excited about that and, and it's a time for annual review coming up and you're hoping against hope that you're gonna get one of those uh, promotions and maybe a raise and you're excited, you're working hard and you're digging in and all of a sudden your supervisor comes and asks you to do something that you know is wrong. And there's no question, it's wrong. And again, you're faced with that question. My principles or my job? And do you ever feel like in these kinds of situations that you're the only one who's standing for what's right? And it would be just so much easier to just give in. So how do we stand under that kind of pressure? I want us to look today at a character who went through incredible pressure, long-term pressure to cave in. And it would have been so much easier to just cave. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. And we're in this midst of this series called In the Beginning God, the first four words of the first verse of the first book of Scripture. And we looked in chapter 1 at, at just all, we, we were looking at the creation, but in particular how just the proofs for the existence of God are just readily seen in this passage, that to believe in God requires faith, but any worldview out there requires faith. And that really it's very reasonable to believe in the biblical God based on the proof in history and what we see around us. Absolutely. We looked in chapter 2 about life as God intended it. We looked in chapter 3 about temptation and how this was the first act of open rebellion against God that we have followed suit in. And that's the same chapter when the promise of Jesus is first given. In chapter 4 we looked at the encounter between Cain, of Abel and we, Cain and Abel, and we, we talked about the, the, the pattern we saw there where we can go along the path of Cain or along the path of Abel. And this morning, we're going to be looking in chapter 6, and the title is, It Looks Like Rain. Chapter 5 is this listing of the genealogy of the people that come subsequent to Adam and Eve. And in the Hebrew culture, and of course in many cultures in ours as well, uh, that history of who we are and how we're made up is really important to them and to us. And so there's this whole listing of all these different people that lived and, and those kinds of things. And there's two names in particular that stand out in chapter 5. One is Enoch, and the other one is Noah. 
And they stand out because it says both Enoch and Noah walked with God. And the presumption is, is that everyone else on this list didn't. But Enoch and Noah did. And this is the background to chapter 6. Enoch dies in chapter 5, but Noah is still living, and the story begins in chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, and his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So let's just stop right there for a moment because uh, all kinds of people ask all kinds of questions about those first four verses. In particular, who are those guys named the Nephilim? What were these people? You know, there's a movie... Uh, that many of us will have seen. It came out in 1969. It's a classic. It won the Academy Award, I believe, that year. And it's called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it's set in the Old West, and there's two criminals, train robbers, who have a gang of people that rob trains over and over again. And they rob one particular train, and all of a sudden, another train, as they're getting ready to go, another train comes up, and out of that train comes a whole bunch of special detectives called the Pinkertons that have been hired to pursue, in particular, these two criminals. They don't even care so much about the other criminals, but these two gang leaders, they want to capture. And so they chase after them, and no matter what the two criminals do, and they're very sharp, especially the one guy, no matter what they do to throw these guys off the trail, they can't do it. They try all kinds of tricks, and the movie is... Is a, is a drama, and yet it has a number of comedic moments. And, and this is one of them. As they're trying to escape from the Pinkertons, every time they try a trick, and the Pinkertons are able over to overcome it and are able to follow them, the two criminals, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, Paul Newman turns to, to Redford and says, who are those guys? And if you've seen that movie, it brings a smile and a chuckle every time because he keeps saying it every time they try to get away. And when people look at these first four verses, I think oftentimes they're going, who are these guys? They're only referred to one other time in Scripture, in Numbers chapter 13. So I looked at a number of sources for who these guys might be, and there's all kinds of suggestions out there. Some people think they're royalty. Some people think they're a blasphemous cult that promoted human beings as sons of God. Not unlike we have right here in our community. There's a number of those here, aren't there? Blasphemous cult that promote human beings as sons of God. Some people think they're just men of tall stature, of importance, of political influence. I remember chatting with someone that suggested that they were fallen angels somehow producing offspring with these women. Every one of these views and probably a few other ones that are out there that I don't know about have major holes in them. And we're not really sure. And so to be honest with you, after looking at these four verses, I'm just kind of like Paul Newman, scratching my head and saying, who are these guys? Let's keep reading. The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil all the time. Think about how hard it would be to live in an environment like that. Everybody's heart was set on evil. Horrible place. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the Lord was corrupt, now the earth rather, was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them both and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 200, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring flood water on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of animal of every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And so beginning in chapter 3, right through chapter 11, we see the sort of, uh, we're sort of tracing the downward spiral of all of humanity. And it's becoming increasingly evil and increasingly horrific. And you know, some people will read this story here in chapter 6, and they immediately jump to this idea, you know, God seems like such an angry God here. But actually, I want you to back up the train to verse 6. God is sad. God is grieved with the condition of the world and the condition of the human experiment. And I wonder for yourself, does it ever seem like in life the people that choose the righteous way, the good ones, go unrewarded while evil persists without punishment? This is one of the, God's answers to that question. That God is a God who is just and loving and holy and he will deal with evil. That evil will not persist unrewarded or undealt with. And this passage shows how God dealt with evil and how he at the same time wants to preserve the good. And it's a foreshadowing, I believe, of how he almost did this again with the children of Israel and with Moses when he said to Moses, these people are hopeless. They've 
They're, they're so far from me, they don't get it at all, even though they've seen some of the most miraculous things in the world, even though I've walked with them all this way, I'm going to wipe them out and start all over with you, Moses. And Moses stands in the gap for the people of Israel and says to God, please don't do this. And he prays and God relents. We're also, it's also foreshadowing that one day he will judge everyone again. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, it says, when Christ returns, it will be like in the days of Noah. And there will be a wickedness, and they're, and they're just going about life, ignoring the message of Christ, the message that's promoted over and over and over again. And they've just rebelled against this message, rebelled against the truth that there's a God, and they've gone their own way. And then they will act surprised when he returns and they're called to account. The people of the then known world have given themselves, the text says, over utterly to wickedness. Their every thought is inclined towards evil and to violence and to wickedness. And God is grieved over this. It fills his heart with pain. And so I just... I want to pause and just remind us that when we make the choice to sin, we suffer. Our loved ones suffer. Even though we like to pretend they don't, they suffer. The people within our sphere of influence, they suffer too. But one that we often don't think about is that God suffers too. And it grieves the very heart of God that we make the choices that we make, and it pains him. And so eventually, God's incredibly long-suffering patience, which is way longer than any human being's patience, ends, and he decides to judge sin. And this chapter of Scripture, I believe, poses, perhaps for the first time, the most difficult question there is in all the world. And so some of us are thinking, well, Scott's going to suggest that the most difficult question in the world is, you know, if God is a, and this is a question, if you're chatting with pre-Christians, they will often ask this kind of question, you know, if your God is a good God, why is there evil in this world, or why would he do something like the flood? Those are very difficult questions to answer. Don't think I'm minimizing that at all. They're tough ones to address, but they are not the most difficult question out there. Not easy to answer, but not the most difficult one. The most difficult one is why did God save Noah? Why there is evil, why there was the flood, questions like that, really tough to answer. You know, in a very quick compartmentalized way, and I would do it a lot longer if I was talking to people, but it goes to the heart of the fact that God is absolutely holy, God is absolutely pure, he's absolutely truthful, there's no lying in him, and yet he's given us freedom to choose. And when we choose, there are consequences that attach. And this is at the heart of why there is evil. Much more difficult question than that is, why, why, why did he offer grace to us. See, we don't like to think about that question. We like to put it on the, well, you know, why is there evil? We don't like to look in the mirror. 
Why would he offer grace to us? Why didn't he just wipe us all out and chalk it up to a failed experiment? Why did he provide Christ? Why was Christ willing to come? Why did he offer grace to us and offer to save us? That, that's the question. So God sees this long-term, unrelenting generation after generation of pure evil and wickedness, with the exceptions of Enoch and Noah. And he decides to save Noah. So he tells Noah, hey, I want you to go out in chapter 6, and he says, build this big boat, a big ark, and make, you know, waterproof it with pitch and tar and the, the ark is 450 feet long, which is 137 meters. It's 75 feet wide, which is 22.8 meters wide. And it's 45 feet high, which is 13.7 meters high. And if, if you were trying to get a picture of how big this is, it would be like if you started right here at this little pulpit where I'm standing and went through the church, through the lobby, through the offices, out Pastor Aaron's office, through the parking lot, across the street, right over to the Mormon training center there, just to the left of Dairy Queen, where the green box is. That would be about the length of the ark. And then if you look at these pillars just under the balcony on the walls here, that pillar right there beside the black thing, between the black thing and the, back, the door, and drew a line straight across to the other pillar on the other side, that would be about 75 feet, or 22.8 meters. And if you went from the the highest point of the ceiling in this room, an additional 18 feet on top of that, another five and a half meters higher. That's how much, how high the ark would be. And it had three decks. And somebody figured this out, I don't know who, but they figured out that a, an ark of that size would hold 520 standard railway cars, each of which could carry about 240 sheep. So it was a big place. And so it's Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wife. And it would have taken a long, long, long time to build. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, commenting on this story, that all during the time that Noah was living life and then building the ark, he preached righteousness. And so all, all through his life, and then the entire time he's building the ark, he's telling the story of God. He's inviting the people and anyone that would listen. God wants to have a relationship with you like he does with me. It's a wonderful thing. Wouldn't you accept it? And the pay, so all through, even though God has decided to judge, he's still offering them chance after chance after chance. The patient merciful God keeps giving all these people that are thoroughly undeserving one more chance after another to repent. And I want you to imagine with me how difficult it was for Noah not to cave in. Not to say, this is crazy, I'm not doing it. He's building this huge boat and there's absolutely no you know, reason or foreseeable reason to do it. Imagine how people would have ridiculed him. Imagine how they would have laughed at him. They would have told him 
you're wasting your life. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many people here have had someone look them in the eye and say, you're wasting your life following the God of the Bible. You're an idiot. You're a fool. You're believing in a bunch of myths. How could you be so stupid? They would have been saying things like that to him. They would have assumed he'd lost his mind. In our culture, we would have assumed he's lost his mind. We've got to medicate this guy. We've got to lock him up in an institution somewhere. Imagine an entire lifetime of living this out and talking about it and then who knows how many years building this ark and not one person listened. That's tough. I can't even imagine that. Think about how discouraging it would be to take however many decades to build this boat. No, no cordless drills back then, right? And all of this time as he's faithfully working away, he's sharing God's call on their life. He's calling them to salvation. No one is supporting you. Everyone would be ridiculing you, calling you the community joke. Can you imagine the jokes they told about him? And not one person accepts God's offer. How hard would it be to stand for God against that kind of pressure? So let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're having trouble, whatever your circumstances are, if you're having trouble standing with God, and standing for God, and living out your Christian life, and there's people pressuring you to bail. You have a friend in Noah. And it's not impossible. We're going to talk about how this all took place. How did he stand for God? Because it says in chapter 5 that Enoch, who dies during this era in chapter 5, Enoch and then Noah, these are the only two guys over all this time, that walked with God, it says that Noah was a righteous man who found favor in God's eyes. How did he do that? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, which is sort of the, the it's called the, the, the heroes of the faith chapter, and, and it lists all these people that at great, incredible personal cost stood when everybody else was running for the hills. And Noah is one of the prominent characters in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says in verse 7 about him, by faith, we're going to discover here how he did it, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so it begins, as any relationship with God does, by faith. It begins by faith. God said to him, Noah, this is going to happen. There's no outward sign that it's going to happen. But you are going to need to make the choice by faith. This is how a relationship with God begins. It begins by faith in someone we can't see. Um, we at least can look back and look at all the historical marks to show us that Jesus really did live. 
that Jesus really went to the cross, that he literally did rise from the dead, that there's a historical certainty to these things. He had to look at something that he had no idea. <laughs> no, you know, he's looking ahead. And so by faith, he takes that step. This is how a relationship with God always begins. It begins by faith. I have to make a choice to believe something I perhaps can't see that I don't totally understand, but I'm going to do it. And here's the thing that's kind of cool, and this is a bit anecdotal, but in my life, my experience has been after I make the decision to trust, not before, but after I make the decision, I understand it better. I may not understand it fully, but I definitely understand it better. And Noah knew he had to begin by faith. It all does. And like I said earlier, every worldview involves a level of faith. They all do. Then it says in that same verse, he did this in holy fear. So here's Noah, and he realizes something fundamental. It's one of those line in the sand moments where you go, I fear the displeasure of holy God more than I fear the displeasure of all those people. I fear the displeasure of holy God more than I fear the displeasure of all those people. I've said this in the past, I'll say it again. When we talk biblically about holy fear, this is not you know, a paralyzing fear that you're, you're cowering in the corner, unable to do anything. No, biblically what holy fear means is I have this profound respect for God. I, I have an awe that almost takes my breath away. And, and out of this profound respect and this deep awe, I recognize his way is the way I will go. I'm more concerned with God's displeasure than the displeasure and the ridicule I'm receiving from them. Then the next step. The first two ones are, are, are inward decisions. And they're important. It all begins inwardly. It all begins. The Christian, like anybody that will tell you again, you know, Christians, it's all about a list of do's and don'ts. They're thinking outwardly and they don't get it. They've mixed it up. It all begins inwardly with a choice to trust what God has said. And so he, 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 he takes a step by faith. There's three times in that verse it references his faith because it's that important, by faith. And then he is in holy fear. He wants to please God. And then thirdly, it becomes a step of simple obedience. Verse 22 of chapter 6 and then verse 5 of chapter 7 in Genesis. It says... 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded. And verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And it just becomes that simple. It begins by this inward choice, and now outwardly, I'm going to act. And some people have this weird idea that they can just, you know, sort of internalize this stuff, but it doesn't impact how they live their life at all. They haven't really believed what they've believed. That's what I would say. Because when you actually believe something, it changes your life. It impacts your life. 
Next thing, and this is very important as well, he talked about the right things. He declared the right things. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, in speaking about this, it says, um, if he did not spare, speaking about it, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. See, Noah declared the right things. When we declare the wrong things, it's almost like we're bringing a curse on ourselves. And it's very important to be speaking about and declaring the right things to, you know, even though they would be getting in his face and laughing at him, who knows what they did. He declared the right things over and over and over again. Very important. Then I'm, I'm going to look at this and say he was involved. I know it was his family, but he was involved in a small supportive group. This is one of the reasons we encourage everyone to be in some kind of a small group in our church. And many people are well over 200 adults are in small groups. So they're in groups of, of, of three triads or um, of eight to 10 or eight to 12 people and some mid-sized groups that are 20 plus. And we encourage you in those environments. Yeah, you're going to study the word of God together. Very important. Going to pray together and support one another and be in community together. Have each other's back. We talked about that in Genesis chapter 3, how they didn't have each other's back. Very important when the pressure comes that there will be someone to pray for you, to hold you accountable, to know, as I've, I've said this even a couple weeks ago, when I know I might disappoint that person, not only God, but when I know I might disappoint that friend, that's stopped me at points from doing what I was thinking about doing, planning to sin. I'm not going to do it because I know it will hurt them. It's important. And then the last one, the cherry on top, the one that is absolutely crucial, is sustaining grace. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that God protected Noah. And so as you look biblically, we won't take a lot of time with this, but biblically, there's saving grace, the idea that the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, through acknowledging that I've done sinful things, acknowledging that the only way, as Brian pointed out from Isaiah 53 earlier, is to have my sin laid on Jesus' account, to him pay for my sin, and, and I receive him as Savior and the Lord of my life. The two go absolutely hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And so there's saving grace in Scripture. We also see what I would call general grace, where God just kind of protects the whole thing because otherwise we would destroy this world in no time. And then there's a sustaining grace that we see here where God steps into Noah's life and says, I'm with you, man, shoulder to shoulder. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help carry you through sustaining grace. How do you think Jesus didn't succumb to temptation? I said this a couple of weeks ago. It's not, and many people are confused by this, he did not succumb to temptation because he's God. Nope. He didn't sin because he was the spirit-filled God-man. 
And Hebrews says he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And so he was full of the Spirit. And we see ample evidence of this in the Bible. And God never expects us to do this stuff in our own strength. We, we, we think sometimes that's the way it's supposed to be. And we will crash and burn if we do that. The way is to link hands with him, to surrender our life, to ask him to fill us with his spirit and empower to live this kind of life. So where is the, where is the peer pressure in your life? Is it in your home or your relatives or your friends or at school or in work? I just want to gently remind you that when the day of accountability comes and we stand before holy God, none of, them, none of those people will be standing there with you. I will be all alone and you'll be all alone. When Debbie was 12 years old, Debbie's my wife, in case you're wondering. She's the one sitting down here front that I was sort of half snuggling with during the service. And uh, she was 12 years old, and she lived in Grand Center, Alberta, which is the location of the Coal Lake Air Force Base, which at that time was, and it may still well be, the largest Air Force Base in Canada. And uh, her dad was a pastor there, actually. And just through simple obedience, uh, Debbie befriended Sylvia. And uh, pretty soon, Sylvia started coming to Sunday school and church at the church where her dad was the pastor. And eventually, Sylvia gave her life to Jesus. And over a period of time, um, everyone in Sylvia's family gave their life to Christ, including her dad, Joe. Joe was in the supply department at the Cole Air Force Base. And it was fairly common, maybe it still is, hopefully not, but it was fairly common to steal things. And you would steal things for your friends, and they would steal things for you. And you bartered back and forth and helped each other out, quote-unquote, in those ways. And so... Joe was actively involved in this. He was involved, you know, he was stealing stuff for his friends and they were stealing stuff for him. And one day he stole a pair of boots for one of his friends who was away for a period of time. I don't know why, maybe on a deployment or something like that. And so he just held on to the boots for when his friend would come back. And uh, during the time he had the boots, Joe decides to give his life to Christ. And remember, when something happens inwardly, it results in an outward change. The Bible says we become new creations in Christ. And Jesus comes into your life and he changes your values. It's usually a process, but he, he changes your values. He changes what's most important in your life. And he becomes number one in your life. And so Joe was serious. He, he gave his life to Jesus he committed uh, his life, he invited Christ to forgive him of his sin, and he gave his life, not just as Savior, but Lord as well. So then his friend comes back, and he called his friend, and he said, I'm a Christian now, and I can't steal for you anymore, and I've put the boots back where I got them from. That made Joe decidedly unpopular. 
on the Coalace Air Force Base. They ridiculed him. They laughed at him. Back in those days, they probably called him the Jesus freak and things like that. You lost your mind, Joe. We've known you for a long time. Lost friends. He took it on the chin. But I do know this. Joe won't be answering for those boots one day. Last time I've heard, I'm, I'm assuming it's changed because some time's gone by. Joe was one of the elders. That, that means spiritual leaders in the Alliance Church in that area. That's the kind of transformative work Jesus did in Joe's life. Where's the peer pressure in your life? I want to pray with you. Let's bow together in prayer. And uh, if you'd like to come up and pray with someone, I'm going to, uh, I can't remember who's supposed to do it, so I'm going to ask Greg Bowles if he would do it. He's a good guy. Greg and Marissa, if they're available. So they've done it before. And uh, I'm going to invite them to do that. So if you'd like to come and pray with someone, uh, we encourage you to do that. But let's end our time in prayer. You know, Father, this is tough stuff, eh? Um, because it's just seemingly so much easier to just go with the flow and just do maybe what we've always done or what everybody expects us to do. Everybody's doing it. And so, Father, as we live for you, like Noah did, and at times at great personal cost, I just pray for a fresh anointing of your spirit. I pray that you would pour your spirit out on this place that we would be empowered to live for you, to make choices that honor you, to make choices that will be tough at times, but in the long run are the best way to do life. And so I invite this for this group of people. I pray that we would continue to be a community of believers that impacts this city and this world, and it begins by those inward commitments that then result in something different in our life. And so we pray these things just with grateful hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.